This is going to be a good morning. Uh, grab your Bibles. Uh, we've got some over here on the resource table. And flip over to Acts chapter 9. We're going to look at the entire chapter 9 today. Uh, it's going to be uh, a fun sermon. And uh, while you're turning there, I just wanted to point out something. I really appreciate uh, the way that the other elders have stepped up this last month to cover the pulpit, to cover the preaching. Um, I think they've just done a terrific job. That's one of the, the, my favorite things about Wayside is just being able to share the pulpit with our other elders. And, uh, and they've really done a great job. They, they actually gave us a chance to, to get out of town for my father-in-law's birthday. We got to get some rest as a family. Um, I got to focus on some church ministry stuff that I don't always have time week to week to focus on and some pastoral stuff as well. So it's been really refreshing. So I really appreciate those guys. And I've heard so, so many good things from y'all as well, um, having them up there. And um, uh, Chris, Martin didn't this round. He'll, he'll get it another round. But Chris, John, and Kevin have really done a good job walking us through uh, how the church expanded beyond Jerusalem. And we talked about this from the very get-go in Acts that there's this geographic, these concentric circles of geography of the expansion of the gospel. So in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the end of the earth, right? And so we see that throughout Acts, and they really did a great job walking us through how the gospel and how the church initially expanded outside of Jerusalem, uh, with Philip and uh, Stephen and others uh, helping to preach the gospel to get, it, to get it to move on. But one of the other reasons that the gospel moved outside Jerusalem is a, a Pharisee by the name of Saul. We saw him show up in the stoning of Stephen. And so we've also seen him kick out, uh, uh, not kick out, but, but persecute and sort of thrust the church outward outside of Jerusalem because of his persecutions in and around Jerusalem. So we've already seen Saul a little bit, and today's passage is a really significant hinge because it shows the conversion of Saul the persecutor and how he became Paul the apostle. And then he's going to, starting in chapter 13 and beyond, he's really going to uh, be the primary, uh, the, the biographical spotlight is going to be on Paul going forward from there. So this is a really important passage. It's a really fun and applicable passage as well. And it's, it's pretty lengthy. Uh, it's 31 verses. I'm going to read through it as I do the sermon. Um, but it, it really, I mean, I could preach a thousand different sermons out of this chapter in Acts. Okay, so we're not going to cover all there is to cover uh, in the context of this. Um, but what I do want to focus on today, I want to focus our attention on one of, one of the most important themes in the book of Acts. And it's one of the most important applications that we can make as the modern day church, as Christians living in the 21st century. And that is God's power to accomplish his purposes. That's going to be a theme all throughout. It's been a theme all throughout scripture, but it's certainly going to be a theme in Acts. God's power to accomplish his plan, his purposes. We need to believe in that. And just to kick things off, um, I was, I was, uh, I called Sugi, uh, Sugi, John's wife, Sugi Courtney, uh, is, is a fantastic teacher of Mandarin Chinese. And uh, the, the, the Mandarin word for contradiction, where is Sugi, is she here? Uh, uh, where, where, oh, John, you can represent, you can represent Sugi. So I actually had to call and ask, and I was like, Sugi, help me out here. But the, the Mandarin word for contradiction is Mao Duin. Mao Duin. If anybody else speaks Mandarin, you can, you can fact check me on that. But that word, it literally means spear, shield. It's just those two words put together. Spear, shield, Mao Duin. 
And, um, and I looked it up because I was interested. I, I kind of geek out on stuff like this, but I looked up the, uh, the origins of this word. Well, why is the word for contradiction in Mandarin spear shield? So it goes back to an ancient Chinese story from the third century BC. Uh, and it's the story, it's a tale, a legend of a, of a man who sold spears and shields. And he was uh, promoting his spear uh, that he was selling as uh, it could penetrate any armor, any shield, anything. And that's kind of how he hyped it up for the sale, right? But then when he was selling his shield, he told people that it was impenetrable and nothing could penetrate it. And so you end up with this, this, this paradox, this contradiction, and it gets uh, you know, uh, ultimately enshrined in the Mandarin language as the word for contradiction, which is spear shield or Mao, Mao Duin. Okay? So I thought that was interesting. But um, the reason I bring that up is because that is one example, and I'll give you another one. Does anybody like Pokemon? Okay, yes, I do. I do personally. I think it's cool to see how they put all these fantastic creatures together and stuff. But if you've ever seen Pokemon, there's a particular series called the Sword and Shield series. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Does anyone have any idea? Thank you. Right. Thank you, Stacy. We have recently come into the world of Pokemon. But uh, uh, there's a Sword and Shield series, and the mascots for the Sword and Shield series are these two canines named Zacian and Zamazenta. Zacian and Zamazenta. And they represent, one, a sword, and one, a shield. And the way that their, their you know, attack strength and defense strength is set up is that one has a little bit more attack, but one has a little bit more defense, and they kind of neutralize each other. So those characters in Pokemon are really modern-day manifestations of this 3rd century B.C. tale that, that we get the word in Mandarin for, for contradiction from, the spear shield, these things that neutralize each other, or at least present us with a paradox of how could these things ever work together. And uh, in philosophical uh, circles, this is known as the irresistible or unstoppable force paradox. There's actually people that, that think about questions like this. And the traditional way of, of phrasing the question is, what happens when an unstoppable force meets with an immovable object. Now, if you're a Marvel fan, that's the Hulk and uh, Juggernaut. If you're a DC fan, that's what uh, in Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight, uh, the Joker said when he ran into Batman. He's like, so this is what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. So this, this shows up that you don't know it as the irresistible or unstoppable force paradox, but it shows up all throughout our culture there's a lot of cultural references, including Pokemon, it seems. Uh, but the point is, this is something that people ponder out there in the world, but this is something that we, as, as biblically-minded Christians, this is already settled. The Bible has already settled this, this quote-unquote paradox for us, and it resolves this issue by revealing that there is absolutely no such thing as an irresistible or unstoppable force outside of God himself. We need not even consider this to be a paradox because the Bible reveals God as the only unstoppable or immovable or irresistible force in the world. Nothing in his creation can claim that title. So it settles the issue. And today's passage reiterates this same point by showing us that Jesus alone is both immovable and unstoppable. And I hope you walk away with that today. As Christians, we... we we must believe this simple, straightforward fact that Jesus alone 
is both immovable and unstoppable because here's the deal. When we take our eyes off of Christ, and you see this in Scripture, I mean, Peter walking on the water. When you take your eyes off of Christ, his person, and and on this side of the cross and resurrection, his person and work, the gospel. When you take your eyes off of the immovable, unstoppable person of Jesus Christ, then what happens? What happens to Christians? What happens to us? Well, we start to believe, we begin to believe that other things besides God, other things besides Jesus are unstoppable or immovable. Other things like dictators on the global geopolitical scene. Uh, Other things like diseases, different diagnoses, or even death itself. We look at death and we start to think when we take our eyes off of the personal work of Christ that death is an unstoppable force. But as Christians, we can rest assured that these things are not and that only God is. Um, if, if we were living in Jerusalem in the early years of the church, and this, the story we're looking at today probably happened within two or three years of the, the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. But if we were living back in those days in the early church, folks, we would be strongly tempted to think of Saul the persecutor the guy we're reading about today, as an unstoppable force. He had, he had all the intellectual prowess. He had all the ambition and zeal. He had all the pharisaical training under Gamaliel. He had all the religious authority he needed from the chief priests and the high priests in Jerusalem. He had everything he needed to do what? to seemingly pursue Christians to the ends of the earth to stop the spread of the gospel and to quench the church. But this seemingly unstoppable force was stopped on a dime by the unmoved mover, as Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas would, would, would call God, But he stopped on a dime by the unmoved mover of all things, and that is God himself. And in our story, that is God himself in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the big idea for today is that our Lord alone is immovable and unstoppable. And so we must fear the Lord alone in order to find peace in this life. And by the way, I mean fear in a biblical sense. I don't mean we're cowering as though he's just going to throw a a lightning bolt at us and and blow us up on a whim. I mean, in a biblical sense, we have to have a reverential awe of who Jesus is. In that way, we, 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 we put him in our sights. We leave our eyes on the person and work of Christ as he truly is. And that is how we find peace in this life. And that's the only way to confront seemingly unstoppable forces like sin, like Satan, even like death itself. That's how we face it. For the purposes of uh, today's sermon, I'm going to divide our passage to look at, on the one hand, the immovability of Christ in verses 1 through 19, and then I'm going to look at the unstoppability of Christ and the gospel uh, in, in the last half of our passage in 20 through 31. So, In verses 1 through 19 in chapter 9 of Acts, we see that the Lord alone is immovable. And we see this in basically three stages. First, a seemingly unstoppable force comes out of Jerusalem. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Luke records, now Saul, still, and by the way, Luke was a traveling companion with Paul. He was a good friend of Paul. 
Um, so this is really interesting to read what he writes about Paul here. But he says, now Saul, still breathing threats and murder. Remember back in chapter 8, we saw that he launched this persecution against the church. He was go- they were meeting from house to house to break bread and, uh, and, and fellowship and worship together. He was going from house to house, taking the men and women and putting them in prison uh, to abuse them and try and get them to blaspheme Jesus. Okay? So it says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. This is one of the ways that he's Jesus and Christianity are referred to in Acts. If, if he found any belonging to the way, whether men or women, he might bring them in shackles to Jerusalem. So Saul issues forth from Jerusalem to, to push around and to persecute Christians as far away as Damascus, which is like 135 miles from Jerusalem. And then next, that seemingly unstoppable force meets the truly immovable one. Look at verses 3 through 9. Now, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Okay, so this seemingly unstoppable force, Saul, is knocked down to the ground and blinded. And Saul, who was a scholar of the Hebrew Scriptures, understood who he just met. He understood that he just met the God of Israel. Because in the Hebrew Scriptures, the only one who blinds eyes and opens eyes, who blinds the eyes of the proud, and who opens the eyes of the humble, is God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so finally, we see that a Christian has to now choose between believing in this seemingly unstoppable nature of Saul the persecutor or to trust in the immovable nature of Christ. So look at verses 10 through 19. We're going to meet an Ananias, another Ananias. It says in verse 10, Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. That's one of my favorite phrases in all of the Bible, Old and New Testament, is when God calls to someone and they respond, Here I am, Lord. Um, And that's how Ananias responds. Here I am, Lord. How how do you want to use me? And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Here's where you see this unstoppable force, Saul, immovable nature of God. But Ananias answered, Lord, 
I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And here, and here he has authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer in behalf of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like fish scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. So on that day in Damascus, 135 miles from Jerusalem, about midday, which, by the way, you can go back to the Hebrew Scriptures and see people becoming blind at noontime. That's actually a theme in the Hebrew Scriptures that I can't nerd out on right now, but I so want to. But on that day in Damascus, both Saul and Ananias learned that the Lord alone is immovable and can stop whatever and whoever he wishes whenever he wishes to accomplish his purposes. And I think history has proven the scriptural claim that all things come to an end except God. What I mean by that is, in other words, everything in creation is stoppable. There ain't nothing in creation that is unstoppable in and of itself. What scripture tells us is that everything will eventually wear out if, it is not supernaturally sustained by God himself. That's what we mean when we talk about eternal life, is that we are, we are, are in relationship with the God of life, and he sustains us forevermore. That's why we don't wear out. That's why we don't face death, because of the eternal life we have in Christ. And that's what Scripture teaches. Everything else is stoppable. Everything else wears out. I think this week, Vladimir Putin just to use some recent world events that are ongoing, I think, I think Vladimir Putin to some seems like an unstoppable force. I think that Russian aggression seems like an unstoppable force, probably to a lot of people in Ukraine, as well as other places. But the Bible reminds us that, that, that Putin's reign and ultimately his life will come to an end just like the once powerful Soviet Union that he served for so many years. That came to an end as well. This too shall pass. All things come to an end outside of those that are sustained by God himself. And I, uh, I sent out a link to this, but you know it's easy for me to say that sitting behind a, a, a podium in Austin, Texas, right? I'm not in Ukraine. But there is a pastor, I sent you a link to an article he wrote uh, for the Gospel Coalition uh, in the Wayside Weekly on Friday, and I really encourage you to read it. But here's a guy who is, is turning their church of a thousand people outside of Kiev into a place to uh, be a makeshift hospital. They're training their people how to uh, do tourniquets and manage airways and all sorts of things. And, and he sent this article and he basically is trying to help Christians understand the, listen to me, the impermanence of regimes such as, as Putin's 
and the importance of how the church can be salt and light in the midst of these geopolitical ups and downs. And folks, I encourage you to read that article. It was really inspiring for me to read that because he's there. That church is there. Uh, and they're doing the Lord's work in that really tumultuous context. Um, the article, actually, there's an article about that article on the Gospel Coalition that referenced Psalm 2, and it reminds me of Psalm 2. Remember, Psalm 2 is this great messianic psalm about, um, ultimately, about Christ. But uh, Psalm 2 begins like this. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? In other words, if God has anointed his Christ, his Messiah, and he has established him as king over his kingdom, then it is futile for the nations to roar and rage and for the peoples to plot and all these things. And ultimately that gets uh, connected back to um, Jesus being crucified. That, that Pilate and Herod and these Romans and these Jewish religious officials, they're not going to quench what God's doing. They're not going to stop God's plan. In fact, God's going to use their sin to accomplish his plan, to accomplish his salvation. And so again, it asks the question, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? I think as Christians, we can trust in the fact that no created thing is unstoppable and that Christ is absolutely unmovable unless he chooses to move to accomplish his purposes. Isn't that what he said to Pilate? Like, if, if this was my kingdom, I, I could call down 12 legions of angels and just nuke you people, right? Like, that, that's the point. It's like, you, you think you're doing something to me? Nobody takes my life. I lay down my life as the good shepherd for my sheep. That's the point. Nobody moves the immovable Christ unless he so chooses and it accomplishes his plans. So as he permits Russia to invade Ukraine, nobody is forcing God's hand. He's not going, oh man, I, I didn't want that to happen. But I, I go away for a little bit and then it happens and I, I don't know how this happened. That, that is never something God has ever said, okay? So as long as he permits Russia to invade Ukraine, just as he permitted the persecutions of Saul when he was murdering Christians and putting them in prison, that God permitted that so long ago, I think in remembering that, we can pray for strength and boldness for those who are already in Christ in the midst of this invasion in Ukraine. The people that are already trusting in the immovable one, that they would have strength and boldness in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit in the midst of all this tumultuousness. And then let's pray for many, 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 many more men and women and children from both sides of that border to trust in Jesus as a direct result of what's happening over there so that in the midst of this crazy geopolitical mess that God's will would be accomplished through the salvation of many. And we can pray for that. We can pray boldly. We can pray for Russian generals. We can pray for greedy oligarchs. We can pray for Putin himself to come to a realization of their sin and the need for the salvation that only Jesus can offer because, folks, stranger things have happened. I mean, just read the Bible, Old and New Testament. Stranger things have happened. So just to recap, the first part of our passage reveals that Jesus is immovable. So now let's turn to the second half where we see that our Lord alone is unstoppable. 
Our final verses remind us that it is impossible for any created thing to thwart the spread of his gospel and the building up of his church. And it's through chosen instruments like Saul the persecutor, Saul the one-time persecutor, and chosen instruments like you and me, that's who he's using to accomplish this unstoppable work in the spread of the gospel and the building up of his church to the ends of the earth until Jesus Christ returns. So let's look at how his chosen instruments fare when they're faced with difficulties. In verses 19 through 25, Saul, who is now the Lord's chosen instrument, cannot be stopped in Damascus. Cannot be stopped. Let's look at those verses. Verse 19, starting halfway through it. Now for several days he, Saul, was with the disciples who were in Damascus. And immediately, immediately, think about all the knowledge he had of of the Torah, of the law and the prophets and the writings. Think of all the knowledge and all the training under the rabbi Gamaliel in his pharisaical training. Think of how much knowledge he had of the Hebrew scriptures. And so as soon as he realizes the Christ we've been awaiting, the the, the anointed one, the Messiah, is Jesus, it's like all the light bulbs come on and he immediately begins proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Psalm 2 references this one who would be the son of God, right? He's saying this is Jesus and he does it immediately. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not the one who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and had come here to Damascus for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? So this is confusing for them. And it says in verse 22, But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding Jews who lived in Damascus by proving from the Hebrew Scriptures that this Jesus is the Christ When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also closely watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him at night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. So he immediately goes to work preaching Jesus, proclaiming the name of Jesus as the Son of God and as the Christ, the anointed one that the Hebrew scriptures look forward to. And then in verse 26 to 31, our last verses, Saul, the Lord's chosen instrument, cannot be stopped in Jerusalem either. So he goes from Damascus, irony of ironies, where he was going to persecute the church, and he becomes a persecuted Christian. And so then he goes back to right at the middle of where the persecution started at his own hand to Jerusalem and starts preaching the gospel there too. It says, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried repeatedly to associate with the disciples. That's the apostles and the elders in the church in Jerusalem with thousands of people in it. So he's trying repeatedly to associate with the disciples, and yet they, are, they were all afraid of him as they did not believe that he was a disciple. I mean, can't you see this happening with the secret police in some far-off country uh, that, that are antagonistic to Christianity? I mean, if you ever read 1984, right? Like, somebody's like, hey, can I show up to your worship gathering, you know? And it's like the chief of the secret police. This is what they're thinking, right? They're like, okay, he's not a Christian. He's just trying to figure out where we're meeting so he can throw us in prison, right? So you can imagine their their, uh, difficulty with that. But I love Barnabas. Barnabas is one of my favorite characters in the book of Acts. His name means son of encouragement. And this is what Barnabas says. 
Barnabas took hold of Saul and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus at Damascus. And he was with them, this is Saul now, and he was with them moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. Remember we talked about there were Hebraic Jews and Hellenistic Jews in Jerusalem. The Hellenistic Jews came from the diaspora, from the dispersion, and they came with Greek language and some elements of Greek culture. And so you have these Hellenistic Jews, the synagogue of the freedmen that were the ones that were persecuting Stephen, that Saul was using to make up false lies about Stephen so that he could get stoned to death. Those same guys that Saul used to kill Stephen, now Saul's arguing with, these same Hellenistic Jews, okay? But they were attempting to put him to death. Go figure, that's what he had trained them to do, okay? Now, when the brothers learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea, which, you know who ended up in Caesarea? Stephen's good buddy, Philip, one of the fellow... uh, servants in Acts chapter 6. After the Ethiopian eunuch uh, that that Kevin talked about, Philip ends up in in Caesarea. So now all of a sudden the guy that murdered his buddy, Stephen, shows up in Caesarea on the run because he's being persecuted. (laughs) Interesting, right? I just wonder what that conversation was like between Philip and and Saul. Okay, Uh, where were we? Okay, Uh, they sent him to Caesarea and then sent him away to Tarsus, which is his hometown, okay? It's further up the Mediterranean coast. So the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed peace as it was being built up and as it continued in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It kept increasing. It was unstoppable. It kept spreading. And I love how Luke wraps up this section with that last verse. Uh, All throughout Acts, he's got these summary statements of like how the church was doing, and it's always kind of up and to the right, even in the midst of persecution and all these other things, internal and external. And he says uh, at the end, he gives us that great little little wrap-up. But basically, he wraps up the section uh, by saying that our Lord alone is unstoppable, and so we must fear him and him alone. The church is increasing despite persecution. The church uh, is persecution is being overcome such that the church can enjoy peace by God choosing the very persecutors to become the very ones moving the gospel forward. And in all this, the church is being built up and edified and increasing in, 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 in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And that's how he ends this section. Our Lord alone is unstoppable, so we must fear him and we must fear him alone. And as we do that, folks, I'm not saying you're going to have peace in a political, social, relational way, but I promise you that you'll have peace in your relationship with God and you'll have peace in your heart as you experience the comfort of His Holy Spirit. Uh, there's a really powerful prayer that I know a lot of you have heard, but it was, it was delivered in 1976 by Dr. S.M. Lockridge. And this dude, I wish I could preach like this guy, okay? He was awesome. He passed away, I think, in 2000, but... He preaches his prayer in 1976, and it's been put to music, and you should go to YouTube and watch it, but it's, it's entitled, That's My King. Has anybody heard this? That's my king. You heard this? Yeah, some of you are nodding your heads. Go and look it up. Lockridge, that's my king. I can't do it justice, okay? But the prayer itself is this, it's this beautiful description of Jesus Christ, his Lord, his king, 
And it's this incredibly detailed description, all these different things that are said about Jesus in the scriptures. And he goes through them just one after another. Uh, and the speaker's constantly interrupting himself. Dr. Lockridge is constantly interrupting himself as he's describing Jesus. And he says, over and over, he's like, I wish I could describe him to you. And then he goes on describing him. You know, it's this really cool, this really cool prayer. And at one memorable point in the prayer, it's my favorite part in the prayer, Dr. Lockridge says this about Jesus. Listen to it. You can kind of catch his cadence a little bit. He says, he, after he says, I wish I could describe for you, he says, he's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm trying to tell you, the heavens of heavens cannot contain him, let alone a man explain him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, Pharisees, they couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. And then he says, that's my king. I love it. And you guys need to go out. That's your homework. Go out and watch that. Listen to that today. But listen, as Saul the persecutor was approaching Damascus at about noontime, 135 miles into his journey to go persecute some Christians, he met the Lord Jesus Christ and was knocked to the ground and blinded by that experience for three days. And as he sat around in darkness, not eating or drinking, reflecting on all those passages in the Hebrew Scriptures and the prophets and the law that referred to the, the, the hearts and eyes of the, of the uh, proud being blinded, and the, the hearts and the eyes of the humble being rewarded with sight on who God is and what he's doing. And as he's reflecting on all this, Saul began to believe in Jesus as the Savior, as his Lord, as his King, in much the same way that Dr. Lockridge describes him in that prayer. And I think it's beautiful. And three days in, he believed. And that same glorious Jesus is our King too. And just like Saul, we have become his chosen instruments. Hear me, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are his chosen instrument. There is not some dichotomization between clergy and lady in the sense that, oh, well, those people went to seminary. They must be chosen instruments for the spread of the gospel and the building up of the church. Folks, no, no, no. If you've bowed the knee to Christ, you're his chosen instrument. And as his chosen instruments, just like Saul we can understand that we have a purpose in this life and that we will never feel right in this life unless we lean into that purpose. And if you're struggling with purpose in your life with a little p, that's because maybe we're not embracing purpose with a capital P in the sense of who we are as the Lord's chosen instruments. And it's not just us as individuals. It's also our families. It's not just our families. It's also our church family. It's the corporate unity that is Wayside Communities Church in Greater Austin. It's the church in Greater Austin. It's the church in Texas, in this region, in this country, across the world. We are his chosen instrument. So therefore, this church and you and I, listen to me, are absolutely unstoppable as long as, insofar as, we are doing the Lord's will according to His plan. And that doesn't mean we won't suffer like the victims of Saul suffered, like Stephen. He was doing the Lord's will, but the Lord's will was for him to have a relatively short-lived ministry. 
And as he died praying that God would forgive his persecutors, and God answering that prayer in the person of Saul the persecutor becoming the Apostle Paul. Guys, I can't understand how God, he hasn't given me a blueprint on this, but I will tell you this, you are unstoppable insofar as you are accomplishing God's will because no one can thwart his will. But we might suffer like the victims of Saul. We might suffer like Saul himself. But even though Saul suffered all those different ways, do you know what didn't happen? He did not die before the Lord was ready and willing for him to be, go be with Jesus. He was unstoppable. Didn't mean he didn't suffer, but he was unstoppable in that sense. Uh, just like um, you know, we see the suffering of Paul, in his life throughout the book of Acts. Um, I, I won't read them all to you, but there's all these summary accounts of like Paul saying, this is all the ways I suffered. Uh, Jesus is with us as we suffer for his name. And that's another thing we get from the life of Paul is that when you face suffering for Christ's name, he's with you. When you face suffering, period, he's with you. And he takes the suffering of his saints personally. He didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting all these wonderful people that I've chosen? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting... Me, I am the Lord Jesus whom you are persecuting. He takes the suffering of his saints personally. He grieves with us and he also encourages us and he helps us to persevere so that we will be able to fight the good fight and to finish the race that he's laid out for us to run. So folks, let's engage people with the gospel just like Kevin preached about last week in the uh, story of the Ethiopian eunuch, and let's pray expectantly for impossible conversions to Christ of seemingly immovable, impenetrable hearts and minds that they would come to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Seemingly immovable hearts and minds. You all have them in your life. You were one at one point as well in someone else's prayers. But pray expectantly for the Saul's of our day I mean, I've said this before in sermons, but like when a Richard Dawkins comes out with his atheistic stuff and his view of the church and the Bible and all that stuff, pray for him. He could be the next Saul. Become Paul, right? Pray for these impossible. Pray for Vladimir Putin in the midst of all this Ukrainian invasion crisis. Pray for that man that God would open his heart to see Jesus Christ in his glory and bow the knee to Christ. Pray for the, the Kim Jong-uns of the world. Pray for the supreme leader of Iran to have a, a, an experience like Saul and to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. But don't forget to also pray for your cynical aunt, for your addicted in-law, for your incarcerated cousin. I don't know who those people are in your life, whoever they are. Don't forget to pray for them as well. And may the unstoppable, irresistible gospel conquer their hearts and convince their minds of the truth that they too can have forgiveness and eternal life because Jesus died for their sins and rose again and ascended into heaven and is ministering at the right hand of God the Father for them as well. So, I am going to, uh, I think it's, you know, we're looking at the beginning of the ministry of the Apostle Paul today. So I'm going to conclude with the end of Paul's uh, ministry in the words that he writes to Timothy. But at the end of Paul's life, he was unstoppable to this point, but at some point, uh, the Lord allowed his chosen instrument to be beheaded by Nero and the Romans outside of Rome. And I think 2 Timothy was written, and I think he knew what was coming when he wrote it. 
But think of, think of his perspective, because I think it's really important for us and for all Christians as we follow Jesus throughout this life to the very end, whatever that end looks like for you. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul writes the following verse, following verses, even as he was almost certainly expecting his own execution at the hands of Rome. He writes this. He refers to a, an incident earlier in his life. He says, at my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. He says, you know, people couldn't handle it. They ran. I was alone. And he says this. He says, may it not be counted against them that they were fearful and ran. And then look at what he says in 17, referring to this earlier incident. He says, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. At that particular point, he was unstoppable. He was rescued out of the lion's mouth. And then verse 18, this is how he ends it. He says this confidently. Just think of him sitting in prison, considering his own execution. He says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Folks, he came to know in today's passage and throughout the rest of his life, it only grew and deepened his faith in the absolute immovability and unstoppability of Jesus Christ, his Lord, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that, that, that characterized his life and ministry. And I pray it, it does ours as well. So let's close by praying for the church in Ukraine. Uh, and I'm going to pray for the boldness of Jesus as he set his face towards Jerusalem, knowing that he was going to his crucifixion and suffering. I'm going to pray for the boldness of Paul as he went back to Jerusalem, knowing full well what he was going to face there, both then and for the rest of his life and ministry. And let's pray for that same boldness for, for, this, for the church in Ukraine, okay? Please bow your heads with me.